Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, welcome to LawPod. My name is Kavina and I'm a final year LLB student at the School of Law. And today we are joined by Professor Julie Sook, Professor of Law at the Fordham University School of Law. Professor Sook is an interdisciplinary and comparative legal scholar researching equality at the intersection of law, history, sociology, and politics in the United States and globally. Professor Sook has authored dozens of articles and book chapters about comparative constitutional law, the procedural implementation of equality norms in the United States and Europe, gender quotas, and women, work, and family. Professor Sook, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we're going to be discussing Professor Sook's 2014 paper, Codas and Consequences, a Transnational Evaluation. Professor Sook breaks down the normative aspects of Codas and the United States Supreme Court's jurisprudence of equal protection, and then considers the plurality of consequences of Codas using case studies in Brazil and France. So quotas are a fixed minimum or maximum number of a particular group of people, and it is known to be a strong distributive form of affirmative action policies. So before we get into the consequences of quotas, I would like to review the existing U.S. jurisprudence surrounding quotas. So in the U.S., race-conscious admissions policies are legal under case law, as long as they pass a strict scrutiny standard, which requires the use of race to serve a compelling governmental interest, and the use of quotas has to be narrowly tailored to satisfy that interest. So overall, the U.S. approach to affirmative action and quotas seem to focus on individual persons and not groups. So a whole person evaluation where race is one of the many factors considered is accepted, but a set target or quota is not. So Professor Sook, where does this distinction between quotas on the one hand and using race as one of the many factors come from and are there merits to the U.S. approach? Well, I think in the U.S. jurisprudence, there was a case in 1978, the University of California versus Bakke. And in that case, they were evaluating a university medical school admissions policy that actually set aside a certain number of seats for underrepresented uh, minority students. And the Supreme Court held that just setting aside particular positions or seats solely based on race was unconstitutional or didn't pass scrutiny under equal protection. And it wasn't quite then that they decided to scrutinize all racial classifications under the strict scrutiny standard. That comes about 20 years later in a case involving federal contracting, the Adirond case. But generally, what emerges from the Bakke case because of the way that different justices reasoned about the use of race-based affirmative action is uh, that quotas, just setting aside positions or seats, making the whole decision based on race, is unconstitutional. But taking race into account as one of many factors is constitutional. But we're in a changing landscape with that right now because the admissions policy that Justice Powell, in his lone opinion, in Bakke, pointed to in 1978 was Harvard's admissions policy of evaluating individuals, doing a holistic review in which race is one of many factors for the compelling governmental purpose of increasing diversity in the student body. The Supreme Court suggested in Bakke while striking down quotas that taking race into account in this individualized review to achieve diversity manner uh, was constitutional. I think those things are increasingly in question because, as you may know, over the last several years, 
lawsuits have been brought challenging Harvard's admissions policy as a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and the way that we look at discrimination under that statute is similar to the equal protection jurisprudence. But so far, the appellate court, the First Circuit, has still upheld Harvard's admissions policy. But the opponents of affirmative action and the opponents of Harvard's policy are seeking review in the Supreme Court now. And the Supreme Court could grant that case. So with the Harvard case, in that lawsuit, the plaintiffs claimed that Harvard imposes uh, a sort of soft racial quota uh, with the use of their personal rating exercise as part of their admissions exercise. With this, I think it would be great to unpack kind of the use of personal rating because what is at stake there is more towards the implicit bias of the admissions officers as opposed to the actual use of race-conscious admissions. So what's your understanding of how the personal rating works and why was it such a central factor in this lawsuit? So the Harvard case, I think it's further complicated by the fact that on the one hand, the remedy that the groups that are bringing the lawsuit want is the end of all race-conscious decision-making of any kind, uh, whether it's a quota, and you could call it a soft quota or a hard quota or not a quota, But I think that the opponents of affirmative action, by calling it a soft quota, that is, I don't know if the language is even that helpful, uh, they're basically saying any form of taking race into account and giving anyone any sort of leg up because of their membership in an underrepresented or any uh, racial group is itself always a form of discrimination that would violate anti-discrimination laws and or constitutional prohibitions of discrimination, including in the Equal Protection Clause. So uh, what's at issue at Harvard is that obviously they take many, many things into account, including a, a person's race, but the, the whole personal rating into which the race can come into play, there's the additional complication in the Harvard lawsuit where on the one hand, the remedy that they want is abolition of all race-based decision-making in the admissions context, but the problem to which they seek the remedy, they're claiming that the, the personal rating is used in a discriminatory fashion specifically against Asian American applicants. So, and it's an interesting thing because you can imagine uh, that where admissions officers have discretion, there is possibly room for making personal ratings based on certain racial assumptions or racial stereotypes about Asian Americans or about really any group. And that might be a form of discrimination that we traditionally understand as inappropriately taking race into account to the disadvantage of subordinated or underrepresented groups and therefore treating an individual unfairly as a member of a subordinated group, right? But interestingly, the lawsuit is playing on that kind of what I would call a a more traditional or straightforward understanding of discrimination as a way of seeking a remedy that would uproot decades of efforts by institutions to undo the effects of past discrimination by promoting diversity and taking race into account. So the difficulty here is the proposition uh, that taking race into account at all, uh, because sometimes it actually does lead to real discrimination, should be abolished in the service of a view of equality that means never, ever taking race into account, even as a means of overcoming past underrepresentation, subordination, and just real discrimination. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to focus a bit on the use of quotas to counter past discrimination and past oppressive practices by certain governments. 
And before that, I would like to quote the case of um, parents involved against Seattle Independent School District. And I'd like to read a quote by Justice Kennedy as well as Chief Justice Roberts. So Justice Kennedy stated that to be forced to live under a state-mandated racial label is inconsistent with the dignity of individuals in our society. Governmental classifications that command people to march in different directions based on racial typologies can cause a new divisiveness. And Chief Justice Roberts in the same case stated that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So this case concerned the use of race-conscious assignment plans in public primary and secondary schools that aim to ensure that the composition of the student body in each school was racially balanced. So in your paper, you describe the U.S. anti-discrimination doctrine's rejection of quotas as rule consequentialist. So it adopts a rule, which is no quotas, and this is based on the unacceptability of the likely consequences of quotas or other yes. race-conscious actions. And this differs from the perceptions towards quotas in different jurisdictions, such as Malaysia, where I'm from, where we have large set quotas in housing, university admissions, and government contracts mm-hmm. that are made in favor of the socioeconomically disadvantaged infrastructure community. Mm-hmm. And this was made in response to racial riots that occurred in the late 1960s. And in Singapore, they have quotas yeah. um, on allocation of public housing. And it's called the Ethnic Integration Policy and is implemented by the Housing Development Board to ensure that there's a balanced racial mix in public housing and to prevent the formation of ethnic enclaves. So there is like a differing interpretation of the consequences of quotas in different uh, jurisdictions. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the effects of quotas and to what extent do quotas actually cause balkanization or division and to what extent would more race-neutral policies work in contrast to this as advocated by Chief Justice Roberts? Yeah, Yeah, this is a very tricky thing because I think that the effects of racial quotas definitely changes, is contingent. How it actually works as a political and sometimes economic dynamic depends on a whole set of circumstances and changes over time, even within the same legal and political context, or even within one jurisdiction in the United States, the effect of a quota on how different groups relate to each other and whether they can get along and share institutions together. Uh, and also it d- d- depends on the political context. So, so I think that said, as a, a way of doing jurisprudence, I think that it's actually not a very good rule to act as though the natural consequence of a quota is to cause divisiveness. It causes divisiveness in part because white people experience the integration of their institutions, the entry of previously excluded minorities as an intrusion on their entitlements. And so the underlying question that that has to be asked every time you get that kind of balkanization is whether or not one's experience of the underlying entitlement is one that corresponds to an understanding of equality and justice and racial justice. And I think that if the balkanization that you're getting is a consequence of an underlying politics of or an, an underlying legal order structured around inequality, then to suggest that the consequences of quotas is always balkanization or necessarily balkanization simply because balkanization is what you get under political conditions that themselves emanate from unequal history and unequal distributions in the past of education and other social goods. It seems that in those circumstances, following a rule that treats those consequences as fixed is deeply problematic. Yeah. 
And do you think then that the use of race-neutral policies would actually help to prevent the kind of debate that surrounds quotas these days? I think we moved to, into a different space. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, so, so one, what's been interesting for me is looking at the way in which the countries, particularly in Europe and to some degree in Latin America, and I'm closely watching the debates that are going on in Chile right now, which form a very interesting example around quota, setting aside seats in decision-making bodies, particularly political decision-making bodies, but also corporate boards for women, right? So this is something that many countries, including France, Germany, and Italy, started to do in the late 20th century, leading to constitutional conflicts, constitutional courts, other courts saying that having a quota was a violation of whatever constitutional clause there was that guaranteed equality was itself a form of discrimination. And then there were constitutional amendments that overcame the legal understanding that a quota or a measure to achieve gender balance or gender parity was itself a form of discrimination. And I think that the movements that succeeded in uh, achieving those constitutional changes, those constitutional amendments, were premised on the notion that democracy itself was illegitimate, that without gender balance, without full inclusion, particularly without full inclusion of those who were excluded or those whose contributions have been invisible and undervalued in the past, particularly women. And so that presents a new understanding of balkanization as not the consequence of quotas, but quotas as a solution to existing balkanization or existing subordination. And so the idea is that instead of delegitimizing the polity, quotas are necessary to relegitimize a politics of inclusion in the fundamental structure of the constitution and all the lawmaking or decision-making bodies. So in Chile, they are negotiating a new constitution in part because there were social movements that protested inequality in 2019. And that led to a referendum establishing or electing a constituent assembly that will now write a new constitution for Chile. And interestingly, the way it was negotiated because of the social movements that were protesting inequality, including very importantly, feminist movements in Chile protesting gender inequality. One of the provisions of the election for the new constituent assembly in Chile was that the assembly had to be gender equal, that there are equal numbers of men and women had to be elected. And they also set aside several seats for indigenous groups that were previously excluded from political power in Chile. So the new constituent assembly is highly inclusive in that regard. Although interestingly, what you see after that constituent assembly, that very inclusive constitutional assembly goes to work is then they had ordinary elections in Chile and they're going to have a runoff next week where you see right-wing backlash. So again, a politics of balkanization so a far right wing party is going into the runoff in the most favorable position right now, had the largest share of votes uh, in the preliminary round of the presidential election in Chile. And this is someone who is prone to polarizing discourse and rhetoric. So, so I think it is true and it is real that efforts to achieve equality inclusion often lead to polarization and backlash by people who oppose equality. And it may be just as a practical political matter that in order to achieve inclusion, those who seek inclusion have to make certain compromises because of the politics of backlash. 
But I think the politics of backlash is something that um, arises because of ideologies and cultures and actual political structures that reinforce existing entitlements that are not just from a distributive justice standpoint. So to act as though the balkanization is the natural consequence of trying to achieve inclusion by way of quotas and to act as though that balkanization is something that should always be prevented or overcome, I think is not the way that a legal order truly committed to equality and inclusion should operate. Mm-hmm. So you did mention about the political backlash, and I, I would like to focus now on what you said about the right-wing parties generally feeling that quotas are intruding certain entitlements that they possess, and particularly entitlements over freedom to choose. And with regard to that, I'd like to bring up the case of the Parity Act that was struck down as unconstitutional in the Thuringia Constitutional Court in Germany. So the Parity Act provided that electoral party lists had to alternate between a man and a woman. And I'd like to focus particularly on AFD's argument, which the court agreed with, that held that the Gender Parity Act was against Article 21 of the German Basic Law, which provided for the freedom of political parties to choose the candidates that they feel that will help them win voters. And I think this kind of reflects the existing debate when it comes to quotas in general, where quotas are seen to be a way to allow less qualified candidates into an institution on account of their minority status. Do you think then that this merit versus diversity debate is a true reflection of quotas? They're right to the extent that I think they're pushing forth a certain vision of merit, but it's the vision of merit itself that is being contested by quotas. So in the political context, for example, I mean, so so you bring up the issue of freedom. And I think in the electoral context, when we say that there's a requirement that political parties run an equal number and not just an equal number, the, the position of uh, the males and females on the party list are specified by the parity law. And in Tirunija, the problem, the, according to the state constitutional court, the land constitutional court, was that it violated not only political party freedom, but ele- electoral freedom. And that's also an argument that you're seeing. So I should mention that, you know, that years after uh, I published uh, my article, Quotas and Consequences, In the United States, in the state of California, the legislature adopted a rule that requires every corporation doing business in California to have at least one woman on the board, right? And that was immediately, it's been immediately, and it's being challenged in pending litigation now. And the complication in that litigation is that it was brought by a man um, who is a shareholder in a company. And he was he's claiming that he was injured. I mean, there's this larger procedural question of whether he has standing to, to bring this lawsuit. And that was the preliminary issue that the courts were disagreeing about. But his argument is that in being forced to vote for a female candidate, his freedom to vote as a shareholder was somehow compromised. And I think that's a very similar and related argument to the, the argument that was made in Turinija that both the uh, freedom of the voter and the freedom of the political party is somehow hampered by the parity rule and the idea that the merits of the candidate and the and the voters impeding the voters from selecting the candidate of their choice is uh, on the line. Notwithstanding the fact that, of course, the government and law puts many, many restrictions uh, on who you can vote for, you know, in the United States. 
you know, states like their minimum age requirements, for example, there are, there are all their residency requirements. These all constrain choices and they constrain voters' choices on the understanding that one's qualifications, one's merits require some of those limitations for uh, fair representation in a representative democracy to occur. So if now one of those limits is gender, right, um, you can only vote for a woman. Why? Because in a democracy, having a representative government um, that has too few women is actually not representative and is therefore not a legitimate form of representative democracy. You could see that as a reasonable restriction on the freedom of voters and the freedom of political parties. And because, based on an understanding of what representative democracy requires with regard to the distribution of power across gender and race, because of also the way in which those distributions in the past have hampered true democracy in all of these polities. So I think that in that sense, I mean, I think even construing the uh, debate as being about equality or feminism or racial justice versus merit is actually a, a false construction because underlying the claim for quotas is a vision of democracy that is inclusive. And that, that's, a, that's a different understanding of merit than the one being proposed by mm -hmm. those who oppose quotas. Right. Yeah. It's re really interesting that you mentioned the different restrictions that um, voters have and how only certain restrictions are contested and the underlying misogyny that these institutions have do contest the Gender Parity Act, for instance. And as a closing question, when we talk about quotas or any kind of protected characteristics such as gender or race, I think a new debate that's going on, particularly with the Equality Act in the UK, where the protected characteristic of socioeconomic class was something that was not enacted into law. Do you think there is a potential for class-based quotas uh, and practical aspects aside? Wouldn't this remedy what a lot of people think is the issue with current quota systems where the people who are benefiting from it are minorities, but specifically socioeconomically privileged minorities? So I think it often depends on the political context and the history of how the class-based inequalities are working. And I think in the United States, and particularly, I live in New York, and I think there's an interesting set of debates uh, right now about high schools. So for a long time in New York, we've had what you might call merit-based admissions to, to some of these very elite public schools, where the sole criterion for um, admission is performance on a standardized test. And historically, uh, these tests have disadvantaged, or there have been uh, a, a very small number of uh, Black and Latino students, particularly Black students, admitted, at least in, in the recent few years, and a very large number of Asian American uh, students admitted in the last few years. One class-based intervention has been to try to provide uh, a certain number of seats for people who don't score in the highest, high enough normally to, to be admitted but who live in certain zones that are designated uh, as low-income areas. And so that would be what you might say on the ground that looks like a class-based quota. And there's been quite a bit of political conflict in New York about that because it's helped a lot of Asian Americans who live in low-income uh, neighborhoods. And then there has been a question as to whether the classification of low-income um, should be fine-tuned to really get at Black and Latino students who are living uh, in poor neighborhoods. Because the, the problem remains that there's uh, a very large representation of Asian Americans of all socioeconomic classes at these schools, but a really low representation of Black students. 
So I think that to some degree, yes, doing socioeconomic quotas sometimes leads to racial diversity, but sometimes it doesn't. And in a country like the United States, racial diversity is extremely important independently of doing a distributive class-based justice, uh, largely because the history of slavery and Jim Crow in this country has led to forms of racial dynamics that overlap largely with class injustice and distributive injustice, but is not limited to that. And there are dynamics that I think lead to Black exclusion and underrepresentation that are connected to lack of opportunity, lack of educational opportunity and poverty that seem to work quite differently with regard to other groups that are also poor. So I think that if your real goal is to achieve a truly inclusive society in a in a country that has a tremendous and heavy and just uh, very difficult history of the dynamics of race-based slavery, I don't think class-based interventions by themselves are going to get you to racial justice. Well, thank you so much, Professor Sook, for taking the time to speak to us today. I hope our listeners are a little bit more informed on CODAS and its positive consequences as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.